Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Following the holiday of Passover, there's a period of uh, 49 days uh, called the period of the counting of the Omer, in which Jews in the biblical time recalled their journey from Egypt to Sinai. At Sinai, they received the Torah, and the 50th day after leaving Egypt is known as the festival of Shavuot. I will speak more about Shavuot when we come closer to that uh, observance. But in modern times, these 49 days, which traditionally were simply marked by um, the counting of the Omer, a biblical commandment to bring a barley offering, to the temple uh, during these 49 days between Passover and Shavuot, or between leaving Egypt and Sinai, in the modern period, there are three holidays that have found their way onto the Jewish calendar. None of these holidays are biblical, and in a sense, none of them are religious. They are three holidays which are about the notion of peoplehood. One of the things that separates uh, Judaism from other religious uh, traditions is its notion of peoplehood. We are, we think, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as found in the book of Genesis. We are the descendants of the people who stood at Sinai. We are the descendants of King David, Saul, and King Solomon. We are the descendants of the people who, forced into exile by the Babylonians, returned to Jerusalem under the auspices of the Persian King Cyrus. We see ourselves as those descendants, and therefore we see ourselves as a uh, people united uh, through history. During these 49 days, there are three observances which speak to the nature of our peoplehood. Two are relatively sad occurrences, and one is an unbridled celebration of redemption. One is known as Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Memorial Day. One is known as Yom Hazikaron, a day of remembrance for those individuals who died in trying to reestablish the Jewish state and maintain the current state of Israel as a Jewish state. And the third is Yom Ha'atzma'ut, the day of Israeli independence. This morning, I want to speak with you about Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Memorial Day. The full name of the day commemorating the victims of the Holocaust is Yom HaShoah Vahagavura, literally the day of remembrance of the Holocaust and of heroism. It is marked on the 27th day in the month of uh, Nisan, the Hebrew month of Nisan, 
a week after the seventh day of Passover and a week before Yom HaZikaron, the memorial day for those who have died in defense of the state of Israel. When the 27th of Nisan falls on a Friday or Sunday, Yom HaShoah is shifted a day to avoid conflicting with the Jewish Sabbath. The date, the 27th of Nisan, was selected by the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, on April 12, 1951. The full name became formal in a law that was enacted by the Knesset, the Jewish parliament, on, October, on August 19, 1953. And although the date was established by the Israeli government, it has become a day commemorated by Jewish communities and individuals throughout the world. In the early 1950s, education about the Holocaust emphasized the suffering inflicted on millions of European Jews by the Nazis. Surveys conducted in the late 1950s indicated that young Israelis did not sympathize with the victims of the Holocaust since they believed that European Jews were led like sheep for slaughter. The Israeli education curriculum began to shift the emphasis to documenting how Jews resisted their Nazi tormentors through passive resistance, retaining their human dignity in the most unbearable conditions, and by active resistance, fighting the Nazis in the ghettos and joining underground partisans who battled the Third Reich in occupied countries. In the land of Israel, a siren is sounded on Yom HaShoah at 11 a.m., and it stops traffic and pedestrians throughout the state of Israel for two minutes of silent devotion. All radio and television programs during the day are connected in one way or another with Jewish destiny in World War II, including interviews with uh, individuals who survived the horrors of the Holocaust. Musical programs are adopted to the atmosphere of Yom HaShoah. There is no public entertainment on this day as theaters, cinemas, bars, and restaurants are closed throughout Israel. Jews in North America also observe Yom HaShoah, sometimes within the synagogue and sometimes within broader Jewish communities. Commemorations range from worship services to communal vigils and educational programs. A few congregations find it more practical to hold a commemorative ceremony on the Sunday closest to Yom HaShoah, and many Yom HaShoah programs feature a presentation by a Holocaust survivor, recitation of appropriate songs and readings, sometimes the viewing of a Holocaust-themed film, also presentations by new media in which we try and express the importance of remembering. Yom HaShoah recently took place. And so I thought that besides this historical reminder of the purpose of Yom HaShoah, I would speak to you today about something that many speak to me about when we come to this time in the Jewish calendar. Many people ask me, 
What do the terms Holocaust and Shoah mean? Why does the Jewish community uh, not call this Holocaust Remembrance Day and use a Hebrew term, Shoah? And what do these two terms reveal about how we view the respective roles of God and the Nazis in the Jewish genocide? You know, I think we would all agree that language is a reciprocal tool. It reveals, and at the same time, it is revealing. We use language to explain things that define our world, but at the same time, we use language also to disclose how we explain and define ourselves within that world. In general, everyone can instinctively grasp how a given word or phrase is used to demarcate or even create that small bit of universe that it encompasses in linguistic terms. But the subtle aspects of how this same word or phrase might disclose a part of our own identities is less obvious and less consciously considered. Without trying to in any way denigrate our conversation, I would call your attention to the fact that recently, as a means of remembering the tragedy in Humboldt, Saskatchewan, people wore hockey sweaters throughout Canada as a symbol of unity. Now, many people wore hockey sweaters or jerseys that, were, that don't play hockey. The jersey or sweater took on a totally different means and method. And so, in effect, while normally when we see somebody wearing a hockey jersey or a hockey sweater, we think of someone who plays or is about to play, the language both revealed and is revealing. It revealed something about who we are as Canadians in relationship to hockey, and it was revealing of our empathy and sympathy for the families in Humboldt. So let us take the term Holocaust. In contemporary English language, the term Holocaust is commonly used to connote a genocide, a systematic murder of any group. When used in this manner, the term is usually qualified, so it is clear what Holocaust is meant. The Armenian Holocaust, the Senti Romani Holocaust, the Biafran Holocaust are simply some examples. Similarly, nuclear Holocaust can be used when describing the elimination of the entire human race in a nuclear war. One simply shifts the qualifier from the object to the agent of destruction. But the most prominent and common use of the term Holocaust without any qualifiers is as a reference to the murder of six million Jews by the Nazis. It is taken by most to be the archetype, the most extreme case against which all secondary applications of Holocaust are measured and for in which they each draw their sense of meaning. One simply acknowledges the primacy of what has come to be identified as the most horrible event of the 20th century, the purposeful destruction of European Jews by the Nazis, the capitalization of the T of the the and the H of the Holocaust. The Holocaust serves as the designated term of record for the murder of two-thirds of European Jewry. 
Nothing more needs to be said about those words. And yet the term Holocaust did not evolve in a vacuum. But like all semantic developments, has a context. In examining that context, one is necessarily drawn into consideration of that other side of language. The self-revelatory aspect involved in the choice of a given word or phrase. For for as it turns out, Holocaust is a rather strange term. Its use as the label to designate the Jewish genocide is neither obvious nor inevitable. In fact, looking through history, it is surprising. The Oxford English Dictionary attests that the word holocaust comes via the Latin holocaustum from the Greek holocaustos, or as more common variant, holocaustos. This, in turn, is a compound composed of holos, an adjective, or as the linguists say, an adjectival substantive, meaning the whole, entire, complete, and all its parts. And kostos, another adjectival form, meaning burnt or red hot. Thus, the basic linguistic etymology, meaning holocaustos, is something really burnt up or something totally consumed by fire. Whereas we usually think of that something being people, the original referent was something else. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible, employs the term holokotum or holokostos well over 200 times. And without exception, the term is used to designate a sacrifice, specifically the olah, the offering that was to be wholly consumed by fire, as discussed in Leviticus 1.3 and Leviticus 6.9, in 1 Samuel 7.9, and throughout the biblical text. The Latin translation of the Bible, known as the Vulgate, uses the Latinized version of the term, Greek term, for ola as well. So the Greeks and the Romans did not see the word holocaust as related to genocide. They saw it as related to the burnt offering as described in the Hebrew Bible. From here, the term appeared in the Catholic translation of the Bible into English. The Douay-Rheims translation of 1609, which used the Latin translation Vulgate as its base text, translated Ola, Hebrew, as Holocaust. And this was actually a sharp departure from other English translations, The Middle English translation of the Vulgate, done under the direction of John Wycliffe in the 14th century, uses the term Brent sacrifice, while William Tyndale's translation of the Bible, done directly from the Hebrew language, depending on the book, goes with burnt offering as does the Geneva Bible of the 16th century, burnt offering. 
In fact, in the introduction to the 1611 Protestant translation known as the King James Version, the translators attack the Catholic use of the word Holocaust and say that it is really not an English term and it should not appear in the text. The King James translators claim that the use of this term is an example of papist obscuritism designed to make the text difficult to understand. Now, be this as it may, this Latinism entered the English language as a rendering for burnt offering. And thus, the first definition of the Oxford Dictionary is a sacrifice wholly consumed by fire, a whole burnt offering. While the second definition in the Oxford English Dictionary applies the sense of sacrifice in a more general fashion, a complete sacrifice or offering, a sacrifice on a large scale. Now listen carefully to those definitions. In one case, it is a burnt offering, solely dependent on the offering itself being consumed totally by fire. In the second definition, it says that a sacrifice made on a large scale, and the use of fire is not included in the second definition. Therefore, the Oxford English Dictionary then offers an additional definition which derives from the broader, more generalized sense of the term. I quote, complete destruction by fire or that which is consumed, complete destruction, especially of a large number of persons, great slaughter or massacre. For example, in the 1833 book Wanderings by the Loire, Lich Ritchie quips that Louis the Louis the Seventh of France was a man of nice honor, although he once made a holocaust of thirteen hundred persons in a church. Ritchie is here referring to how, toward the end of Louis the Seventh's war against Teubel the Sec of Champagne, he attacked and burned the French town, during which over a thousand people who took refuge in the local church were burnt alive. As a reference to genocide, i.e. the systematic murder of one race of people by another, the term is first employed to describe the Hamadian or Armenian massacres of the late 19th century and the burning of Armenian villages by the Ottoman Turks. For example, in September of 1895, The New York Times ran this headline, Another Armenian Holocaust. Notice that this is 50 years before the term would be used as an adjective for the events or a descriptor of the events that took place in the Second World War. New York Times ran the headline, Another Armenian Holocaust, with the byline, Five villages burnt, 5,000 people made homeless, and anti-Christians organized. One Holocaust in particular stands out during this period, the burning of a cathedral in Urfa with 3,000 Christians still inside. The term is again employed in various stages in the Armenian genocide. The 1909 massacre, which involved the burning of villages in Adana, The 1915 massacre, the systematic destruction of the Armenian population in the wake of World War I, and Ataturk's burning of Smyrna in 1922. 
This last episode was described as the Smyrna Holocaust by Mevel Chater, a well-known American journalist and travel writer for the National Geographic, who spent years reporting on the tragic plight of the Armenians. He wrote, the initial exchange, episodes of exchange drama were enacted to the appointment of the boon of Kamenin and the rattle of machine gun with the settings pointed by the flames of the Smyrna Holocaust. The dance of flames became a fiery hurdle race. As the wind flame, fanned flames leaped from a balcony to balcony across the narrow streets. Then the race became a hungry conflagration whose roaring mouth ate through and gulped down that mile and a half breadth of city down to where 300,000 souls huddled between the waste of fire and the waste of sea. Eventually, during and after World War II, when the atrocities perpetuated by the Nazis against the Jews became clear, the term was adopted by many as a reference to this Jewish genocide which was even more systematic and a larger scale than the Armenian genocide. The connotation of not merely massacre, but the destruction by fire seems to give the term appropriately tangible overtimes. That is to say, the horror of the event may be said to be properly emphasized by a term that evokes the smell of burning corpses in the Nazi furnaces. Seen in this light, Holocaust seems to be an apt term to describe what the Nazis did to the Jews. Acknowledging the semantic development of the term Holocaust outlined this morning, the word's origin as a reference to burnt offerings remain. Personally, I find the religious imagery implicit in Holocaust objectionable when applied to genocide insofar as it seemingly designates the murderers as equivalent to the priestly officials engaged in acts of divine offering and brings up the grotesque image of Nazis burning six million Jews as an offering to God. Moreover, in the Jewish imagination, such an offering is associated with the Akedah, the binding of Isaac in the biblical story of Genesis 22. These are troubling images to have juxtaposed to the slaughter of the six million Jews by the Nazis. And so we look for a different term. We look for a term that would try and explain the unique nature. The modern Hebrew term for the European Jewish genocide, Shoah, has no religious or sacrificial overtimes. It is a powerful term which comes into modern Hebrew from Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, and means devastation, desolation, or ruin that affect man and land. First used in the booklet Shoat Yehudi Polin, the devastation of Polish Jewry in 1940, the word today is widely used in academic and ecclesiastical circles and has become more and more recognized in possible usage. It is used in the Hebrew term, as I said earlier this morning, Yom HaZikaron L'Shoah the Memorial Day of the Destruction and the Bravery, typically known, as I said earlier, as Yom HaShoah. And because Yom HaShoah is a Hebrew term, it forces us, unlike the English Holocaust, to focus exclusively on the Jewish victims of this massacre. Of course, whenever we speak 
of the events of World War II. It is not to deny the millions of others who were murdered by the Nazis, irrespective of their religion. Whereas Holocaust is inevitably a God-focused word because of its older meaning, the word Shoah, devastation and destruction, is human-focused and is not loaded with theological overtones. And that is why the Jewish people prefer the word Shoah. Language determines how we think. If we call the slaughter of six million Jews a Holocaust, we are consciously or subconsciously connecting victims of Shoah with sacrificial victims and perpetrators of murder and genocide with the Levites and the temple priests. Such thinking further distracts us from the human evil by putting too much focus on God and theology. Using the term Shoah, however, puts the focus squarely back on the tragedy of the Jewish genocide and the evil perpetrated by the Nazis. Though this does not absolve any of us from grappling with the Shoah's theological ramification, choosing to call the slaughter of six million Jews by such a human-focused term forces us to consider the very human reality of this most catastrophic event in Jewish and indeed human terms. For some of you, this may seem like a very academic conversation. But let me assure you, for those of us who are members of the Jewish community, for those of us who try desperately to understand the meaning of the destruction of two-thirds of the world's Jewry, while the rest of the world stood by and basically ignored it. These words are important. As I've already suggested, Holocaust, given its roots in the Latin and in the Greek and through Christian tradition, suggests that the Jews who went to the extermination camps and whose essence was seen floating through the chimneys of Auschwitz and Birkenau, Treblinka, and other extermination camps were somehow sacred sacrifices, that which cannot be accepted by the Jewish world. The word Shoah, however, even for those who do not speak Hebrew, is a reflection of the very essence of what this events of the Second World War were. Beyond being a genocidal attempt, and with great success in many cases, it was the annihilation of the Jewish people. It was, as I've suggested, the wholesale, wholesale destruction into oblivion it was, as the term suggests, uh, devastation and destruction. And that is why each year the general world in November observes Holocaust Memorial Day as set by the United Nations, but the Jewish world observes Yom HaShoah on the 27th of Nisan one week after Passover, and one week before the celebration of the 
establishment of the third Jewish commonwealth in the land of Israel. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can listen to a podcast of this morning's show on CHRI website or through iTunes. Good morning and have a good day. Shalom. Shalom.